Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast, where we explore the life and times of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and delve into the history of World War I, World War II, and the Korean War. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. Sybil Kathagasu, Heroine of Malaya Sybil Kathagasu was born on September 3, 1899 in the Dutch East Indies. Her father was an Irish-Eurasian planter and her mother was a French-Eurasian midwife. As a young woman, she trained as a nurse and midwife. On January 7, 1919, she married Dr. Abdon Clement Kathagasu in Kuala Lumpur. It was an interesting match and one that worried both of their parents. She was a devout Catholic and he was a Hindu. Despite these concerns, the marriage proved successful and the Kathagasus built a life together. Their first child was born in 1919, but died soon after birth. He was named Michael in honor of Sybil's brother, who had died at Gallipoli in 1915. Stricken by their loss, the couple adopted a young boy named William Pillay. The adoption was followed by the birth of a daughter, Olga, in 1921. Months later, the family, including Sybil's mother, moved to Ipoh in northern Malaya, a town on the banks of the Quinta River. There, the family established a clinic at number 141 Brewster Road. A second daughter, Dawn, was born in Ipoh in 1936. By all accounts, it was a happy time for the family. This changed in the years ahead. The Japanese invasion of China in 1937 and then the outbreak of war in Europe in 1939 raised tensions all over the world, even in Ipoh, where the Kathagasus and their neighbors lived in suspense and dreaded the outbreak of a wider war. The Japanese had long seen Southeast Asia as Japan's natural and even rightful sphere of influence, and they wanted Western colonial powers out of the region. Initially, this was reflected in commercial and diplomatic ways, but by the summer of 1941, German military successes in Europe had emboldened the Japanese in Southeast Asia. European colonial possessions were increasingly threatened by the Japanese military, and Japan's relationship with the United States was also deteriorating significantly. On December 8, 1941, a family friend rushed to the Kathagasu's house to announce the Japanese had bombed Singapore. What they didn't know yet was that the attack on Singapore was just one of a number of coordinated attacks launched by the Japanese that day. War had come. Kathagasu later recalled that the days that followed were checkered in her memory with hope and despair, but that the pattern was dominated by the black. News of the bombing of Singapore was quickly followed by news that the Japanese had landed in what was then South Siam and in Kulantan. Although worried, the Kathagasus were encouraged to see convoys of troops moving through Ipoh to meet the Japanese in North Para. Soon, however, it was clear that a retreat was in progress. Other nearby towns were being bombed, and it was only a matter of time before Ipoh was targeted. The Kathagasus quickly worked out a plan. They owned a garage in the suburbs of the city and stocked it with food and medical supplies. It was partly concealed by a thick bamboo hedge, and they believed it would not attract the attention of the Japanese. In the event of an air attack, they would move their family there to safety, and then they would continue their medical work in the city. With this plan in place, they waited. 
On December 15th, Kathagasu set out to visit a pregnant woman in a nearby town, ten miles north of Ipo. While en route, she saw a number of planes flying over Ipo and hoped they were Royal Air Force or Royal Australian Air Force. They were not. After seeing her patient, she was told that the Japanese had bombed Ipo and her house was reportedly on fire. Racing back, she found her house burning, but was relieved to find that her children and mother were safe at the garage. The only family casualty was her husband, who had been wounded in the attack, but was soon discharged into her care. With her family safe at the garage, she returned to the family clinic and dispensary, directing the evacuations of civilians in Ipo and dispensing whatever aid she could. After a sleepless night in the garage, she took her husband back to the hospital for a surgery. After the operation, the surgeon told her the medical staff was being ordered to evacuate to the south. He suggested the Kathagasu should join this medical convoy and escape the region. She refused. Over the next days, the family and some close friends took shelter in the garage as the Japanese bombing raids continued. By December 20th, Ipo was virtually deserted. The British military headquarters at Ipo was then ordered south. The officers begged the Kathagasus to accompany them, but Sybil refused, believing the family needed to stay and serve the community. This was a noble sentiment, but it soon became apparent that with everyone fleeing south, there were no patients to serve in Ipo. Piling into three cars, the family began a dangerous trip south, not quite sure where to go. They eventually stopped at the village of Papan where they took up residence in a house at number 74 on the only street. After making a few return trips to Ipo to gather medical supplies, they were able to set up a clinic and dispensary in Papan. The entire family worked, whether helping to take care of patients, assisting in surgery, or doing household chores. On December 28, 1941, the Japanese arrived in Papan. Sybil was concerned about reports of mass rape in areas under Japanese control. Worried for her eldest daughter, Olga, she promptly took action. She cut Olga's hair, put her in men's clothes, smeared her face with mud and charcoal, and pretended that she was a mentally disabled boy. The ruse worked. The Japanese government had three strategic goals for Malaya. Number one, restoration of the country's economy to its pre-war level so that it could contribute to Japan's war effort. Number two, the substitution of Japanese for Western cultural influences. And number three, the elimination of communism. Throughout Asia, as the Japanese conquered more and more territory, communists were often their most bitter and best organized enemies. For this reason, any hint of communism was met with a particularly brutal response, and the Japanese actively sought to completely eliminate any communists from Malaya. Chinese of all ages were commonly targeted in these purges. Some were communists, but as Sybil noted, many were simply rounded up because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Over time, even in small towns like Papan, those who initially had been hopeful about Japanese talk of Greater Asia soon became deeply disillusioned as savage purges called into question the benevolent Japanese leadership that had been promised. Japanese brutality also encouraged the growth of guerrilla units in Malaya. 
From the time of the British retreat, the Kathangasus had heard rumors about British and Commonwealth soldiers staying behind in the forest to wage a guerrilla war against the Japanese. While some of these troops did remain, the members of the Chinese community increasingly filled the ranks of guerrilla bands. While some guerrillas were nothing more than opportunistic bandits, the largest guerrilla organization was the Malayan People's Anti-Japanese Army, which was well organized and dominated by communists. Like any guerrilla organization, it depended on the local population for support and intelligence. The Japanese made it very clear, though, that any civilians caught aiding the guerrillas would be shown no mercy. For most people during the war years, news was a valuable commodity. What you heard whispered or over the radio gave you hope and kept you connected to the rest of the world. The Kathagasus were no different. Every day the family would listen to news reports out of Singapore on their radio. In mid-February, the Singapore broadcasts went silent. Days later, the family received word that Singapore had fallen. The Japanese tightened their control over Papun, and soon it was a political crime to listen to the radio, to possess a radio, to discuss what you'd heard on the radio, to have allied flags, to have pictures of allied leaders or royal families, and much more. Those accused of even one of these crimes were tortured, investigated, and then tortured and investigated some more. To control the information people in Malaya could receive, soon the Japanese ordered the confiscation of all radios. The Kathagasu family complied, but the loss of access to the BBC was particularly difficult. The family was starved for news. And like many in their situation, they were not satisfied with Japanese reports that the invasion of India and Australia were imminent. Sybil refused to believe that the Allies were defeated, but recognized it was hard to maintain hope without access to news. She wanted a radio regardless of the risk. One evening, she broached the subject to her family, explaining, Listen, our greatest hardship is not knowing what is happening to our friends abroad. We are cut off from the free world like frogs beneath a coconut shell. We learn only what the Japs care to tell us. Truth or lies, we cannot distinguish between them. But a wireless set will bring us the truth, and truth means hope for us all. Her family agreed. After some discreet inquiries, they were able to find a radio. They named it Josephine. They hacked open Josephine's wooden case, removing most of the radio's bulk, and then removed the speaker and replaced it with earphones. When it hardly looked like a radio anymore, they hid Josephine's parts among books and other provisions. The news they heard was hardly encouraging, but Sybil later remembered that just hearing the voice of the BBC announcer, even if he was describing Allied reversals, gave the family hope that the world they knew still existed. For security reasons, the family was selective in sharing any news with even the closest of friends. The guerrilla movement was becoming more of a problem for the Japanese, and the Japanese were widening their network of informants. It was difficult to know who to trust. It was around this time that the guerrillas came to the Kathagasus for help. In the summer of 1942, Sybil's husband returned to Ipo with their eldest daughter to operate a clinic there. Sybil and the rest of the family stayed in Papan, where she managed the clinic. One day, her husband introduced her to a young Chinese man nicknamed Maru. 
Maru asked Sybil if she would help the gorillas by providing basic medical care and medicine. She wasted no time in agreeing, reasoning. I could not approve of some of the gorillas' methods, but this was war. They were fighting a common enemy, and any help I could give them was a contribution to final victory. She knew that the leaders of the Malayan People's Anti-Japanese Army intended to set up a communist state in Malaya after the Japanese were defeated, but she was also aware that at the moment they presented the most viable option in terms of defeating the Japanese. Plus, from her perspective, they didn't seem too focused on ideology at the moment. Sybil was soon treating gorillas with minor ailments who came to the clinic disguised as farmers. To help explain his constant presence at the house, Maru, who'd been training to become a teacher before the war, was appointed Don's teacher. Excellent at compartmentalizing information, Sybil never informed Maru or the other gorillas of the radio she possessed. Although she did occasionally pass on news to them, the number seventy-four house soon became a clearinghouse of information. Initially, no suspicion fell on Sybil, and it was not uncommon for all classes of people to gather at her house to wait for treatment and, at the same time, pass on information to each other. Being of mixed race, Sybil also had great freedom of movement. The Japanese had imprisoned all Europeans from allied nations. And to ensure she was not mistaken for a European, she wore a special armband with the number 121 on it. This served as a sort of passport and identified her as Eurasian, not European. One day, the gorillas asked her to treat a fighter who'd been shot twice in the leg. The Japanese frequently reminded all medical personnel in Malaya that any treatment of a bullet wound had to be reported, at risk of the severest penalty. After some thought, Sybil agreed to treat the man, but the gorillas had to find a way to spirit the man into the clinic. They agreed to these terms and picked a date for the surgery. The night of the surgery, the gorillas arrived on schedule with the wounded man. After hours of surgery, with no X-rays or even half the equipment they needed, they were able to release their patient to the waiting gorillas, who took him back to the mountains to recuperate. Sybil kept the bullets they had removed and buried them in a glass jar in the backyard, ostensibly as a souvenir to dig up when the British returned, and possibly to be used as proof of Japanese brutality. Japanese patrols increased as they sought to identify people in Papan who assisted the gorillas. Sybil continued treating the gorillas, but soon it was only safe for them to come at night. Up to this point, six-year-old Don had not been aware of their activities. One night, however, the little girl woke up to find a gorilla waiting in the house. Sybil later found her daughter sitting on the man's knee, playing with an empty revolver. With no choice, Sybil was forced to explain to her daughter that she couldn't say anything to anyone about the gorillas. If she did, the Japanese would execute the entire family. Aware of the serious nature of what her mother was telling her, Don agreed to never say anything. And was pleased to be called the youngest soldier of all. Months passed, and Sybil continued her work for the gorillas, often alone, as her husband spent most, if each week, working in Ipo to make enough money for the family. During this time, she trusted no one. She later wrote, "I never really trusted anyone completely. I felt it was better that way. The Japanese were masters in the art of forcing men to tell them what they knew." But if a man knew nothing, he could give nothing away. Close calls with the Japanese authorities soon became a regular part of everyday life for her. 
and yet she continued to take enormous risks. She found ways to escort wanted men disguised as patients through Japanese checkpoints. Other times, she helped young Chinese men join the guerrillas. One day, she was warned that the Japanese would soon be on to her. Currently, they were looking for a Chinese midwife that they had tracked to Papan. It was only a matter of time, though, before they realized they weren't looking for a Chinese midwife, but a Eurasian one. Concerned for her safety, the guerrillas offered to build her family a house in the safety of the hills. Sybil and her husband ultimately turned these offers down, mostly because of the frailness of her elderly mother, but also because they feared the reprisals that would fall on the other citizens of Papan. The guerrillas repeated their offer, but the Kathagasus did not change their mind. Not even after their home was searched by the local police, nor after her husband was arrested, and it was clear that her own arrest was imminent. In these dark days, the family stopped listening to Josephine, and the guerrillas stopped coming to Number Seventy Four. On August first, nineteen forty-three, Sybil was told to go to the Papan police station to take a phone call. When she picked up the line, she was told to report to the central police station. She promptly refused, explaining. I have just returned from a midwifery case, and I need a bath and my dinner. I shall expect you at eight o'clock. When the officer on the phone objected, she hung up the phone with the retort, "Don't worry, I shan't try to escape while you have my husband as hostage." Then she hung up the phone, went home, had a bath and some dinner. During the meal, she instructed her family how to continue without her. By 7 p.m. that night, a crowd of concerned citizens had shown up at her house. She dispensed as much medicine to them as she could. She was also told that the guerrillas were planning an ambush to rescue her. She refused this offer of aid and told the messenger, "I will not try to save my own life at the expense of others. Tell them not to worry. I will never give them away." After a tearful goodbye to her family that night, Sybil was taken to Ipo and put in prison. Conditions were grim, but she was soon able to establish contact with her husband, who was also being held in the same prison. By chance, two Indian men who had once served as sanitary board laborers on Sibyl Street in Ipoh before the war were assigned to dumping latrine buckets in all the cells. These two men used the cover of their work to pass messages between the Kathagasus. It was a good cover. A laborer carrying a bucket of human waste was not likely to be searched or stopped by the Japanese. After a whole week of waiting in her cell, Sybil was eventually summoned for questioning. When she refused to admit to helping the guerrillas, she was beaten. This pattern continued for days. Then she was left in her cell for a period of time and was constantly given new cellmates. Often the cellmates said that they were guerrillas and were very chatty. She never trusted them and refused to reveal anything to them. One day she was called in for another interrogation, but instead of the questions, they brought in her husband, who was literally disfigured from beatings. He told her he had admitted to treating guerrillas after a day of pretend beheadings and waterboarding. After this, Sybil confirmed she treated guerrillas, but refused to add any more information. The beatings continued for weeks. Other methods were also used. Needles were run under her nails. Heated iron bars were applied to her legs and back, and she was beaten with canes that lacerated her skin. Sometimes the interrogations took place at the Kempetai headquarters. Her primary interrogator there was a sergeant named Yoshimura. 
One day she was brought before Yoshimura for questioning. He asked her if she loved her daughter, and then sent a car to bring Dawn to the prison. When she arrived, the guards tied her up and tied Sybil to a pillar. Yoshimura ordered Sybil to reveal everything she knew about the gorillas, but still she refused. Even after more beatings, she still refused. And so Yoshimura's men, using a tree branch as a pulley, hauled Dawn into the air and spread hot coals under her feet. They placed wood and kerosene nearby. The threat was obvious, and Sybil began screaming and struggling to get free. Dawn tried to calm her and cried, Don't tell Mummy. I love you and we'll die together. Jesus will be waiting for us. When Yoshimura threatened to lower Dawn into the building fire, Sybil screamed, Is this the bravery of Dai Nippon, to torture and kill a little child? I always thought the Japanese were cowards. Now I know that it is true. This prompted another furious rain of blows. The commotion soon drew a crowd. A Japanese officer that Sybil had never seen before walked over and issued a terse order. Japanese soldiers rushed to cut Dawn down and to release Sybil. Once released, she raised a fist in the air and shouted, Long live Malaya and the British. And to Yoshimura, you'll pay for your crimes when Malaya is British again. This resulted in further beating, but as Sybil was finally put back in her cell that night, she was relieved to hear that Dawn had been released. Each day brought more torture and the same questions. Sometimes her husband was tortured in front of her. Sometimes she was beaten in front of him. Eventually the Kempeitai gave up and a truck was sent to take both to a prison at Batu Gaja. To Sybil, the new prison was like a palace after the cells of the Kempeitai. Although separated from her husband, she was told he was recovering from his ordeal in the men's section of the prison. She herself, however, worsened. What had started as a nagging pain in her lower spine increased daily. Soon her legs could no longer support her. Although she did not know it yet, Yoshimura's beating had fractured her lumbar vertebrae. Around this time, she and her husband and adopted son William were then put on trial for aiding the gorillas. Her husband received 15 years in prison, and William received three years. Sybil herself received life in prison. Unable to walk, she spent months in her cell, cut off from the outside world. Friendly wardens would occasionally smuggle news or food to her, and in May of 1945, a scrap of newspaper was pushed into her cell. Germany had surrendered. Soon, Sybil began noticing that Japanese soldiers around the prison had leaves and twigs stuck into the webbing of their helmets. This gave her hope that Malaya was again on the front line and that the Allies were returning. On August 15th, an RAF plane circled the prison and dropped a shower of leaflets. One of the leaflets was brought to Sybil. It announced the Japanese surrender and that the British would be back. On September 6th, the Japanese superintendent of the prison brought a doctor to see her. He explained that the Japanese government felt very sorry for her condition and was sending her to a hospital. Sybil found this hypocritical at this point, but refrained from waving her leaflet in his face. The hospital sent her home. She was soon joined by her husband and William. Her elderly mother had died during her captivity, but the rest of the family was happily reunited in Ipoh. Two British officers working with the Malayan People's Anti-Japanese Army arrived to interview her about her experiences. 
They then informed her that she would be flown to Great Britain for medical treatment, at the expense of the government, as if she was a wounded soldier. Sergeant Yoshimura, who had so brutally tortured her, was brought before the Para War Crimes Tribunal. It was a short trial. After two days, on February 20, 1946, the president of the court informed Yoshimura, The heroism of the mother and her child is beyond all praise. To you who inflicted such unendurable mental anguish upon them, no mercy can be shown. The sentence of the court is that you suffer death by hanging. As promised, Sybil was taken to Great Britain for treatment. For two years, doctors worked to restore her health. She was eventually able to walk unaided again, and in 1948 she became the only Malaysian woman to receive the George Medal for Gallantry, the highest civilian honor given by King George VI. She was eventually able to walk unaided again, and in 1948 she became the only Malaysian woman to receive the George Medal for Gallantry, the highest civilian honor given by King George VI. In May 1949, as she was making plans to return to Malaya, she fell ill. While in captivity, she had suffered a fractured jaw, and despite numerous operations, on June 4, 1949, she died from an infection related to this injury. She was 48 years old. Whitehall's colonial office put out a statement that Sybil was the Edith Cavill of Malaya. She was later buried in Ipoh, and in 1954, her unfinished memoir, No Dram of Mercy, was published. Tributes to her heroism have continued. In 2016, on the 117th anniversary of her birth, Google launched a special doodle for web browsers in Malaysia. The doodle showed Sybil in her nurse's uniform outside her former residence in Papan. The ribbon of the George Medal surrounded the doodle as a tribute to her courageous contributions to the resistance movement. In 2017, her George Medal was donated to the General Douglas MacArthur Foundation by her daughter Dawn Spaulding. Today, the medal is at the MacArthur Memorial in Norfolk, Virginia. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.